So Judges 4 verse 1 to 5 verse 3. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now the Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Haggaiim. Because he had 900 chariots filled with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up from, to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots filled with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is, your day, the, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. 
Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. Our second passage is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Hi, Uni Church. My name's Mike. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you. We are preaching through Judges at the moment, uh, so it'll be helpful if you flick back to Judges 4, because that's where we'll be tonight. I'll give you a moment to, to do that if you didn't leave your thumb uh, in your Bible earlier. Uh, when I was a kid, the typical hero in the Hollywood movies was flawless in character. They were a pillar of integrity and strength. But over the last two and a half decades, Hollywood has started to create a different type of hero. A hero who is not perfect. Uh, a hero that is quite broken or has some kind of flaw. It turned, it, uh, it, it spawned the term anti-hero. The anti-hero is still the hero of the story uh, and still defeats the bad guy, but they lack the conventional hero attributes. Maybe they lack courage, or maybe they lack morals, or maybe they lack a care factor. So think of Tony Stark, Iron Man, arrogant, self-absorbed, abrasive, smoothly condescending. Or think of Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean, the hero who could rise to any occasion. That is, if you get him off the beach drinking rum, he will do that. Or uh, if some of you are into Venom, uh, that guy will heroically save the local corner store from being robbed but would happily kill and eat somebody the next day. Uh, Captain America in the Avengers series, he really stands out as different because he has the character and the morals of a hero from the older era of Hollywood. Because if you know the stories, he kind of was frozen in 1940 and then got kind of thawed out in the early 2000s to find himself surrounded by modern-day heroes who are complicated and broken and have flaws and questionable aspects to them. Uh, It's quite fascinating. Um, This week I found an academic paper entitled 
the findings of a macro study towards a nuanced definition of complex Hollywood heroes. It was 55 pages. I stopped reading after the title. But if you are my age, you would have lived to see a transition from heroes who were unquestionable in their morals and their ethics slowly slide over 25 years towards today's anti-hero. They're still the hero, they still beat the bad guy, but they themselves are often flawed or have questionable ethics. It's been a fascinating slide to watch, but the book of Judges did it first. Last week, we got introduced to this cycle which keeps happening in the book of Judges. Israel do evil in the eyes of God, usually by worshipping foreign gods, and so God punishes them by raising up a foreign army to oppress them and to kind of wake them up to their sin, and it it kind of works. Uh, Israel return to their God, and they cry out to him for help. And then God raises up a judge. Don't think of the little guy with a wooden hammer. Think of a big guy with a sword and he kind of fights off the oppressing army and saves Israel and the land has peace again. That's the cycle that we saw last week. We also saw last week that after the judge, after the hero dies, Israel just goes right back to their sin and the whole cycle starts again. But what we didn't say last week is that the judges that God raises up over the course of this book slowly become anti-heroes. As the book goes on, the judges decline in character. They become more and more flawed. And so this cycle is not a flat, two-dimensional cycle that keeps happening. It's more like a downward spiral in 3D as we go through the book. And And so far, our judges of Othniel and Ehud that we looked at last week, they were pretty decent. But tonight we start the next cycle and we get to Barak, who has some obvious character flaws. He's our first clear anti-hero in the book of Judges. And with each cycle from here, the judges are going to get more and more flawed. So by the time we get to the end of the book, the judges who are saving Israel are a mess. And Israel, well, they're on a downward spiral too. And so the sins they're committing get worse and worse. So by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, uh, fair warning, it is pretty dark. That's where the book is heading. That's the trajectory it's on. But tonight we're only looking at Judges 4 and 5. And we get to Barak, our first clear anti-hero. And this will have much to say to us as God's people. The story is in two parts. In chapter 4, we have the narrative. You can think of chapter 4 like the historical documentary on National Geographic Channel. Uh, Then in chapter 5, Deborah retells the story, but she tells it as a song of praise. So chapter 5 is like the musical version on the Disney Channel. Uh, And tonight at Unichurch, we need to press play on both of these so that we get the point. But we're going to start by watching the doco in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the previous judge of Israel, Ehud, dies and Israel falls into doing uh, their usual thing of falling back into sin and so the Lord sells them, this time, into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who cruelly oppresses them for 20 years. Now, uh, you know, we've pressed play on the National Geographic one, so any good documentary will have a map. So here's our map. Uh, Jabin, he reigns up in Hazor. You can see it up the top there. That's in Canaan, okay? So that's outside of Israel. But he has set up a military base inside Israel at Harasheth Hagoyim. 
And from there he has cruelly enslaved and oppressed Israel for 20 years. And he set up his commander, a guy by the name of Sisera, in Harasheth Hagoyim. And Sisera has his entire army stationed there, but also 900 chariots. Now back in the day, a chariot was the equivalent of a tank, capable of mowing down 100 foot soldiers. And Sisera cruelly oppresses Israel until they wake up to their senses and they return to God and they cry out for help. But instead of raising up one judge to rescue Israel, God uses three people, Deborah, Barak and Jael. Deborah is the prophet who is leading Israel at this time. And in her role as prophet, she summons Barak and has a message for him from God. You can see the message for him in verse 6. Here's the message. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I, that's I the Lord, because this is God speaking here, I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Oh, thank God. Like after 20 years of cruel oppression and slavery... God says to Barak, assemble an army, I will hand Sisera over to you. Thank God. Except Barak says to Deborah, "Uh, I don't know, like, I'll only do this if you come with me, but if you don't come with me, like, I'm not doing this. In other words, he puts a condition upon his obedience. He'll obey God, but only if Deborah goes with him. Now, we're going to explore what that answer means in a little while, but for now, just notice that there's consequences to his lack of willing leadership. Deborah responds to him by saying, sure, I'll certainly come with you, but because of what you're doing, the honour of defeating Sisera and saving Israel will not be yours. The honour will go to a woman. And so off they go, and Deborah goes with him up to Mount Tabor, where Barak summons his troops. Uh, So if you look at our map, uh, Barak and his troops assemble up here, up on Mount Tabor, and Sisera mobilises from Harasheth Hagoyim and assembles his whole army here. All of his men, plus 900 chariots, assembled on the plains of the Kishon River, down the bottom of the mountain. Nice, flat plains, perfect for high-speed manoeuvring of chariots. Advantage Sisera. And then Deborah says to Barak, go, the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And Barak starts charging down the mountain. And Sisera must be down the bottom watching him going, you idiot. My chariots cannot get you when you're up the mountain, but you're running down to the plains where I'm going to mow you to pieces. And as Barak and the Israelites run down the mountain, the incline slowly begins to flatten out as they head toward the bottom. And as the Israelites set foot on the flat plains, Sisera gives the command. And Sisera's army and 900 chariots charge forward and engage them in battle on the flat plains of the Kishon River. And verse 15 describes what happens. Verse 15... At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. 
Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Agoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. The Lord defeats Sisera, just like Deborah said. And Sisera gets out of his chariot, abandons it, and runs on foot. And at some point in the battle, Barak notices that Sisera's chariot is empty, and so he takes off in pursuit He runs after him. But Sisera comes across the tents of Heber the Kenite, who's made an alliance with Sisera. Now, Heber's not home, but thankfully his wife Jael is. Come in, my lord, come in, you'll be safe here. And so he comes in exhausted. Quick, hide under these blankets, you'll be okay here. Here, have some milk. This will give you your strength back. Personally, I'd rather a protein bar if I was being chased, but hey, milk will do. And, and worried that Barak is, is on his tail, Sisera says, look, stand out the front and if anybody comes, just say, nobody's here. Sure thing, my lord, you've got nothing to fear. And wearied from battle and exhausted from running, he just collapses asleep. And while he's asleep, Jael takes a tent peg in one hand and a hammer in the other. And that is the end of this cruel tyrant who has been oppressing God's people for longer than what some of you are alive. Dead at the hands of a woman, just like Deborah said. And then some point later, Barak arrives, huffing and puffing. Have you seen Sisera? And Jael says, yes, the man that you seek is inside. Uh, She doesn't say he's dead, And so Barak's heart at this point, I imagine, just leaps and his adrenaline fires because this is it. This is the moment that he is going to bring justice to God's people. He is going to kill the tyrant who has cruelly oppressed God's people for 20 years. And so sword in his hand and drawn, he charges into the tent, heart pumping for the final hero battle. And he discovers what looks like a Halloween display at a BCF camping store. There's the tyrant pinned with a tent peg through his head into the ground and Sisera is dead in a really grisly fashion. And in Deborah's song in chapter 5, it's Jael, not Barak, who is given the honour of finally bringing justice to an oppressed people. And the honour of defeating the enemy goes to a woman just like Deborah said. Well, there you go. We'll press stop there. That is the historical documentary on the National Geo Channel in Chapter 4. Now, there's two things in that chapter I think that are worth highlighting because there's two things that the musical in Chapter 5 highlights. See, I think the way this works is that the song in Chapter 5, it kind of gives us the clues for how we're supposed to interpret and apply the narrative documentary in Chapter 4. And Chapter 5 highlights these two things. Something about us... And something about God. Firstly, something about us. It's pretty hard to miss that this passage is saying something about Barak's hesitancy to lead and take responsibility. So God has called him to assemble an army and, that, and God has told him that he will hand Sisera over to him. Uh, but Barak says to Deborah, look, I, I don't know, I'm not up for this. I, I'll only go if you go. But if you don't go, I'm not going. Now, I think it's worth thinking about this. I don't think Barak lacks courage. 
Like he does go into battle against a superior army and he chases down the commander for a one-on-one death match. Barak doesn't lack courage. He doesn't lack skill. What he lacks is a willingness to take responsibility and lead. And I think he can tell that because unwillingness to lead and take responsibility is a big theme in Deborah's song in chapter 5. If you've got your Bible over there, open there, just have a look at chapter 5. We're going to dive in to see a couple of verses. Uh, look at the first thing she says in verse 2. This is the opening line of the musical. Verse 2. When the princes of Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Taking the lead, willingly offering themselves. Uh, that's Deborah's opening line. That, that's the opposite of Barak. Barak wouldn't take the lead. He certainly didn't offer himself. If anything, he offered Deborah. He refuses to do anything unless Deborah comes uh, with him. I think the opening line of the song is a comment on Barak's unwillingness to take responsibility and lead in an area that God was calling him to. And Barak is not the only one. Others in Israel do this too. Run your eye down to verse 7 of chapter 5. Verse 7, villages in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. So in 20 years of cruel enslavement, Israel were unwilling to do anything until Deborah arose and got them to do something. And then she spends a few verses singing about, you know, those who actually uh, went to battle. And then... From verse 16 onwards, she starts to throw plenty of shade at people in Israel who were unwilling to take any responsibility. So from verse 16, she starts to list the tribes of Israel who, like Barak, were unwilling to do anything when called. Look at verse 16. Why did you stay amongst the sheep pens to hear the whistlings for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. So the tribe of Reuben didn't come to fight when called. The leaders discussed it. They had a committee. They, they asked the question, should we go? But you know, if we go, who's going to look after the sheep? And they chose not to fight. And they did nothing. Uh, same with Gilead, Dan and Asher in the next verse, verse 17. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Too busy with sheep and trading and life. They didn't step up with when called and they stayed at home. Can you see how Deborah's song is highlighting the lack of leadership and the unwillingness of the people of Israel to take responsibility here? But it starts with Barak the poster boy of not wanting to take responsibility and leadership that God was calling him to. Barak is not rebuked for a lack of courage. He's not corrected for having a lack of faith. What Barak lacks is a willingness to lead and take responsibility in an area that God is calling him to. And what I find a bit unsettling about Barak is that Hebrews 11 holds him up as a model of faith. So you know Hebrews 11, Uh, that's that famous chapter where one by one it lists all these people who had great faith and did amazing things uh, through their faith. So 
You know, by faith, Abraham left his homeland and by faith, Isaac did this thing and by faith, Rahab did that thing. And then after listing all these people, uh, Hebrews uh, says this. It's on the screen. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak. There's our guy. Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. So according to God's word in Hebrews 11, Barak is a man of faith. And clearly he does have great faith. Like, think about it, risking his own life, he goes into battle against a superior army because he has faith that God said through Deborah that he would win. That's actually pretty impressive faith. Which is unsettling because it shows that you can have faith in God and yet be unwilling You can have faith in God but be unwilling to lead and to take responsibility in an area that God is calling you to. I'll say that again because I think this is the point of the Barak story. You can have faith in God but be unwilling to lead and take the responsibility that God is calling you to. That's Barak, our anti-hero. That's Barak but don't let it be you. We don't want to be a people that profess faith in God but are unwilling to lead and take responsibility in areas that God is calling us to. So I think the question for us is, are you willing to take the responsibility that God is calling you to? Now that responsibility is different and will look different for each of us. So it's worth pausing and kind of asking yourself, where is God calling you to lead and to take responsibility? Like, has Jeff tapped you on the shoulder and asked you to lead a hub group? Or be part of a welcome team? Were you part of mania? Do you sense God, through his spirit, stirring you to meet up with that person, to read the Bible one-on-one, or to take responsibility for that newcomer who's sitting alone by themselves? Or do you feel God stirring you, driving you towards the mission field? Where God calls us to take responsibility and to lead for the sakes of his kingdom is going to look different for each of us. So where is God calling you to take responsibility for him? And how are you responding to that call? Because Barak shows that it's possible to have faith in God and yet be unwilling to lead or to take responsibility in an area that he's calling you to for reasons of fear or laziness or worldliness or just a lack of interest in the things of God. That's the big picture, I think. But it does seem to me that men who hide from responsibility and leadership is particularly the target of this passage. Because I think it's, it's hard to miss that this passage has an interest in gender. So in chapter 4, verse 4, when Deborah's introduced to us, uh, it really does want to highlight that she's a woman. That verse 4, it it literally says, Deborah, woman. Prophetess, woman of Lapidoth, she was judging. And when Barak says, I'm only going to go if you come with me, Deborah, her response is, that's fine, I'll come, but the honour of defeating Sisera is going to go to a woman. So while this big picture point of this passage has something to say to all of us 
as Jesus' disciples about whether or not uh, we are willingly taking responsibility in areas that God is calling us to, uh, I think us men who shrink from responsibility and the leadership that God is calling us to is particularly the sharp target of this passage. So where is God calling you to take responsibility? And are you willingly taking the responsibility that God is calling you to in whatever part of life he's doing that? So firstly, something for us. Secondly, I think this passage says something about God. Uh, The Bible, it contains a whole array of images and pictures to give us something of who God is. So he's pictured as a father. He's described as a shepherd. Uh, He's described as a potter. Uh, But this passage that we're looking at tonight, it pictures God as a warrior, a warrior who defeats his enemies. Now, that is probably an image that we're less comfortable with. But in this passage, God does not watch from a comfy recliner in heaven while his people are oppressed and enslaved in the just hopes that they end up okay. Now, he is described as entering the battle. And so in chapter 4, he said to Barak, I, I will lead Sisera to the Kishon River and I will hand him over to you. And when the day of battle comes, Deborah says to Barak, go, this is the day that the Lord has handed Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you, gone ahead of you into battle as a warrior? And in the song, in the musical in chapter 5, we get a clue as to what God actually did on the battlefield. Let's have a look. Chapter 5, verse 4. We're about to read a poetic description of the Lord marching up to Mount Tabor to fight. Verse 4 of chapter 5. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. So Deborah describes God as him marching up to Mount Tabor and, quote, the heavens open and the clouds pour down with water. How great. Sisera has 900 chariots. Israel has a God who can make it rain and wet your washing. How does that help Israel? How does that help? Have a look at verse 20. Verse 20 From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. This is a description of the heavens fighting against Sisera, like the rains coming. Verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. So can you see, on the day of battle, God marches up to fight and he causes the heavens to pour down with rain. And the Kishon River which is fed by all these tributaries from the surrounding mountains on either side, uh, suddenly and rapidly fills up and floods, bogging chariots, sweeping things away, making it impossible to manoeuvre the chariots, which explains why, back in the historical doco in chapter 4, Sisera flees on foot. Did any of you notice that and think that's a bit strange? Like, the guy's got a chariot that can go ten times further and faster than he could run, And he decides to try and flee on foot. The reason is his chariot is bogged and useless in the flooding river. The river which God planned in advance to be the site of this battle. 
So if this was a Hollywood movie, we'd have a kind of sepia or black and white flashback right now to the first thing that God said to Barak in chapter 4 when he said, I will lead Sisera and his chariots to the Kishon River and there I'll hand him over to you. God planned it. God is a warrior who defeats the enemies. And we're supposed to kind of be noticing here all the parallels to the Exodus. In the Exodus, Israel were enslaved to Egypt. In Judges, they're enslaved to Canaan. In the Exodus, God calls Moses to rescue Israel, and Moses is kind of unwilling unless Aaron comes along with him. In Judges, God calls Barak, and he's unwilling unless Deborah comes with him. In the Exodus, Pharaoh's chariots are swept away in the sea. In Judges, Sisera's are swept away in the river. And after the Exodus, Miriam sings that song about God's victory. And in Judges, Deborah sings a song about God's victory. And I really wish we had time to compare those songs. I really wish we did, because they're they're so similar. So similar. DJ Deborah has um, sampled Mixmaster Miriam, I guess. (laughs) I... I've got no excuse for that, sorry. Um, But just hear the point, right? We're supposed to kind of see this rescue in Judges 4 as an Exodus-type event. And God in the Exodus was a warrior. In fact, Miriam's song has that famous line, The Lord is a warrior, Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. In Judges 4 and 5, God is pictured as a warrior who defeats his enemies. Now, if you kind of feel uncomfortable about that uh, and you feel sorry for Sisera, we do get a window into how cruelly Sisera has oppressed uh, these people at the end of chapter 5 because we get this image at the end of chapter 5 of Sisera's mum back in Harasheth Hagoyim looking out the window wondering why it is that Sisera is so late in coming back and in verse 30 she reassures herself that he hasn't come back yet because, verse 30, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. She thinks Sisera is late coming home because he and the army are busy sexually assaulting prisoners of war and the NIV really sanitises the language for us and I'm quite thankful for that. That is the kind of evil treatment that this guy has been dishing out to Israel for 20 years. It's awful. But God is a warrior who fights his enemies And he doesn't let Sisera get away with that kind of evil forever. Now, the New Testament also pictures God as a warrior coming to fight his enemies at the second coming of Christ. That's what we read in that other passage in Revelation 19. And it pictures Jesus coming as a warrior on a horse to judge and destroy God's enemies. Enemies which include Satan but also the peoples of earth who've aligned themselves against God. If you think Sisera was bad news, right now in Afghanistan, Christians are disappearing and being killed by the Taliban just for following Jesus. And that is a common story for many of our brothers and sisters in certain countries around the world. But God won't let them get away with that forever because he's a warrior who on the final day will defeat his enemies. 
And that is a day of justice that our brothers and sisters who are in countries where they are tortured and killed rightly look forward to coming. In the future, God is coming as a warrior to drive the tent peg through his enemies, just as he did in Judges chapter 4. And the only reason that those of us in this room tonight don't need to fear that day is that God came first to drive the pegs into himself at the cross. For those of us who are enemies of God, that we might find forgiveness before the day he comes as warrior to judge. You and I were God's enemies because of our sin and rebellion. Colossians put it like this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. So the status of being God's enemies is not just for the Sisera's of this world who mistreat and kill God's people. The status of being God's enemies is earned by all of us who reject God and live lives without him. But look at the last bit of that verse. But now he has reconciled you. We were God's enemies because of our sin. We, we were those who stood in danger of the warrior God who is coming on the last day to defeat his enemies. That was us. That was us. But thank God that before that future and final day where he comes as warrior to judge, he first came as saviour to rescue and to drive the pegs into his own hands and feet at the cross as God incarnate was crucified to pay for our sin and to reconcile us and to offer us terms of peace. Romans 5 puts it like this. While we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Who does that for his enemies? Well, praise God that he does that for his enemies. And praising God for his gracious and undeserved rescue is a big part of Deborah's song. Praise the Lord, verse 2. Praise the Lord in song, verse 3. Praise the Lord, verse 9. Let the singers recite the Lord's victories, verse 11. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s and he was explaining to a woman how it is that Jesus' death saves us from the wrath of God and She burst out while he was still speaking and she burst out saying, Oh, Mr Spurgeon, if God would save me, he shall never hear the end of it. Well, so should our praise be when we recognise that our sin had made us enemies of God. And yet God drives the pegs into his own hands and feet at the cross to reconcile us as enemies and to offer us peace. So make no mistake, God is a warrior who is coming on the last day, to judge those of us who rebel against him. He is a warrior, but he's also a rescuer who has already come, who first came to offer us peace at the cross of Christ. And this room is full of people who have taken up that offer of peace. My question is, have you? If you haven't, I'm so glad you're here hearing about the Lord Jesus, the one who offers that peace. You should really speak to someone about that and take that offer while there is time because one day, on the last day, that offer expires and God comes as warrior. But until that day, he has come 
as our saviour and our rescuer who drove the pegs into his own body at the cross to offer us peace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you so much thanks and kindness for the way that you have treated us as your enemies, that you have given us the offer of peace that we don't deserve, a costly offer that cost you your son. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for your kindness to us as your enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.